So I have four nieces and nephews, and I was talking to my sister about IXL. And IXL Learning is this fun online program for kids, and it covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. My sister and my nephew love it. The way it works is it's powered by AI, so IXL gives the right help to each kid. And IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Maybe you've been looking into private tutoring, but it's out of the budget, or this is a big school year for your kiddo. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And all of these listeners can get an exclusive. 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash ologies. So visit IXL.com slash ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures, I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hello again. It's still your dog. Still hiding under the couch because I ate from the garbage. Old Alley Ward. Why? Okay, we're back for part two of Fearology, folks. How bananas was the first episode? Did you love it? I have heard from so many of you since this first aired in April 2018 that this is life-changing, and it is for me too. I think about this episode all the time. So we're back for the last half of the interview in this encore presentation. But fun fact, did you know that you can't spell interview without review? It's true. And so when you rate and you review and you subscribe, Ologies, it keeps this little podcast up in the charts. It helps other people see it. And then boom, you have more people to talk about this stuff with at dinner parties. And I read every single one. No shame. And this week's review, it was just so kind. This is a fresh one from December 2019 from Elenism7, who says, I love Dad Ward and this podcast so much. Do yourself a favor and listen. Many of these reviews will probably mention how you'll try to cherry pick episodes, but you'll end up loving them all. And it's so true. I'm not sure how I end up bringing random information from this pod so often, but it just happens. Zombie ants, pumpkins, video games, you name it. Always waiting for the next episode. Also, if you're like, why does she call herself Dad Ward? It's mostly just because there's a lot of bad puns and uh, some well-meaning advice. And I just love you kiddos, want the best for you. Okay, so let's get back into it. We learned last week that fearology is a real word and that stress is just another sneaky word for fear, which blew my mind. And that fear is not helpful unless it's factual and you need your muscles tense to outrun like an angry animal. And that a lot of our fictional fears stem just from being not good enough and being out of control. Uh, Okay, so this week, we'll find out how super successful people approach fear, Mary's scariest hour of her life and what she learned, plus all of your questions about everything from night terrors to self-spookery to shark's bad PR image to how likely is it that a snake bites your butt and the best things about following your passions in life. So sit back, breathe deep, and hold on to your amygdala for fearologist Mary Poffinroth. And it sounds like a Harry Potter name, uh, which is totally fine. <laughs> Let's get right into it. Let's talk about what is the most afraid Mary Poffinroth, fearologist, has ever been. Do you know the most afraid you've ever been? Um... Let's see. I'm, I'm afraid a lot. Um, probably one one story that, that pops in my... It's usually... When you think about all the things you're really afraid of, it's like death, right? Of, yeah. of some kind. Either like your death or someone that you love's death because death is final. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that generally you can't live through yeah. by definition. <laughs> by definition. Um, and, and even living through someone else's death is, is always really challenging. And for more about fearing death, you can see or revisit the episode on thanatology with Cole and Perry. Okay, sorry. Let's, okay, let's get back to our story. Once I was doing my um, graduate work in biology in the Warner Mountains of um, California, which is like very northeastern corner in the middle of nowhere. And it's like an eight hour drive from the Bay Area, which means that I had to like go by myself mm. to do live trapping like a lot. And it's uh, I'm, like, I'm probably like, mm, 
23 at the time, 24. And it's a bunch of sagebrush scrub, which is kind of like a, like a tawny blue color, mm-hmm. almost like a gray blue color. Uh, and I'm dressed in gray field pants and a, and a gray vest because oh, no. I'm smart. And it's hunting season because it's the middle of nowhere. So I'm out by myself in the middle of like the sagebrush scrub, checking my traps. Uh, I was studying um, the habitat partitioning of um, chipmunk species. Oh. So out there doing my thing and I hear this like pop, pop, pop. <gasps> and I like just hit like my, my initial like, you know, reaction is to get super small, hit the deck, like be really, really tiny. And at this point, I know I'm getting shot at. Oh, my God. But I don't know if they're doing it because they don't see me or because they do see me. So, and as a woman, the first thing in my mind is like, not death, but like, oh my God, these are hunters. They're going to be like cowboys and they're going to rape me. That's yeah. like, that's where my mind initially goes. And as you and, do. Yeah, as you do, right? And then like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm, I'm trying to get really small under the sagebrush scrub. And I, I turn over to, to my left and there's a giant fire ant hill like <gasps> right in front of my face so i have to make some decisions about my life right now um the truck that i had is is even if i ran and not a good runner uh would be like a like a 10 minute run to get back to the truck so i'm like okay do i just stay still do i do like like do i i don't, I don't like I, ha- I can't stay right here because <laughs> there's fire ants literally in my face and at this point, I'm going through all of the scenarios of what could happen and um, do do I deal with the very real in my face fire ants and just stay where I am and don't move because uh-huh. they might see if I move? Um, do I like make noise because maybe they don't, don't see me because I want to trust that humans are good? <laughs> You're like, what are, what are all my options? And then I'm thinking like the news, right? Of um, <laughs> like young field biologists found yeah. in Warner Mountains. And oh. it just, this, this happens within seconds, right? All of these scenarios play out in your head. And um, I definitely, and being alone, right? Because like, if I had been with someone else, that ability to reach out would have made everything so much better. Yeah. You know, safety in numbers. And uh, this was like before cell phones were a thing. Oh my <laughs> so, God, this is right? and so and you're just in, in nature. I, I love nature. I'm a biologist, but also nature is scary because we are not good at defending ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> we just... We're pretty, like, we don't have things. We don't yeah. have a good ability to do much of anything physical. <laughs> yeah, we'll think our way out of it. Yeah, like, exactly. Good luck. Right? Yeah, I mean, we've got opposable thumbs. That's kind of cool. That but, helps. Um, and so it, I think that probably is one, definitely one of, like, the, like, scariest factual situations. How did you resolve in. it? Um, I, so I kind of, like, scooted down again. Like, luckily, I'm kind of, you know, like, very, very tiny. I like to say uh, fun-sized. Uh-huh. And I... I just scooted like around away from the ants and just kind of like froze there and like wait and then like waited to hear stuff. So they were like in an ATV, which made noise and just waited for the ATV sounds to like move away. And I have no idea how long I was there, but just like made myself small. Did not like, you know, because the fighting that wasn't really going to help. Yeah. <laughs> and like flying. I knew I was too far. So I'm like, I will just hide. Oh, my God. <laughs> what were they shooting at? Do you think deer? Um, probably deer. Yeah, it's it's like really middle of nowhere, California, like the the one town and by town, I mean, there was a gas station and a bar. That was the town. And that was like an hour and 15 minutes away drive. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just a quick note. So curiosity got the better of me. And I was like, what happens if you do bury your face in a pile of fire ants? What happens? And it led me to a YouTube video with 14 million views in which a guy named Coyote Peterson inserts his hands into a mound of loose, sandy soil like he's just getting the world's worst manicure by thousands of Satan servants giving him itchy lumps and pustules. Let's listen in. I'm Coyote Peterson, and I'm about to enter the strike zone with the fire ant. You guys ready? You shot good? Yep. One, two, three. Holy cow. Ow, ow, ow! Oh! <gasps> ah, ah! Holy cow, that's a lot of things already. Anyway, he tries to keep them in there for like 60 full seconds, just like a good cuticle soak, but he lasts maybe 25 because he's like, fuck this shit, I hate science now. He doesn't say that vocally, but I bet it's in his head a little bit. Okay, back to Mary. 
who were they shooting at and what happened? It was it was definitely one of those like I am actually kind of screwed if they if they were shooting at me because they saw me. But then the reality is the chances are they probably were shooting at a deer and not managed didn't see me because I was all in gray. But and still, yeah, yeah. that's I. I'm gonna put that in the factual. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. It was you know the the getting shot at was super factual. You gotta put that in the factual yeah, bucket. Um, um, but then you know my mind continued to make all different reasons, and in that situation, you know you don't know. Yeah. And um, so I just kind of like waited it out until I heard them like really far away, and then just like took off running. God, you're like, do I owe someone money? I know. Am I in the mob? What's happening? Is this a political assassination? (laughs) Totally. So, yes, even fearologists get afraid. It happens. But, like, super successful, crazy successful people, they must just lack a gene. They just must not feel fear, right? So, um, actually, I want to come back to this. It was the beginning of the top of the talk. I was saying that um, there's uh, a guy who did some, some research looking at how what vocabulary was being used of super successful people versus like less than successful or mediocre people mm-hmm. and like the hyper successful people like the Richard Bransons and the Ed Catmull of Pixar and like the I mean wow have done crazy stuff they use the word fear <gasps> they use the word afraid and they use the word scared. No. Yeah. So in, bumps. Yeah. Like in Ed Catmull's book um, that he wrote about um, creativity, uh, Creativity Inc., I think he he used the exact word fear like 98 times. Oh, my God. And people that are less successful, guess what word they use? Stress. Stress. Shut <laughs> up. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So like, like Ed Catmull said... If we're not afraid, we're not doing our job. Because that means we are playing small and we are not pushing our limits. So learning that fear is something you should run towards in a healthy way with those fictional fears, not like you run towards your mugger. Right. <laughs> Let's hug. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you know, making those adult decisions, but but feeling that fear and being like, oh, okay, this is maybe an area that I don't feel confident in. So what can I do? to push that a little harder instead of running away from it. And that is in terms of, and you know, this is a different episode, but in terms of phobias like that is why exposure therapy can be helpful. Mm-hmm. I imagine, yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's a lot of work being done with like VR um, with phobias and exposure therapy. So it's, they feel a little bit safe, but still their brain is getting trained of it's okay to, you know, get on a plane or wear a sweater or you know, whatever that is to help their retrain themselves. It would just be, me in a spreadsheet. <laughs> spreadsheet. Be like Allie. Spreadsheetophobia. God, I hate <laughs> Excelophobia. <laughs> yes, I hate him so much. Okay. You ready for rapid fire? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just going to throw these at you. You can answer as quickly as you want. Okay. These are from Patreons. Patrons on Patreon who support the show. Thanks, guys. Um, Tyler Fox wants to know, is fear of the dark mostly universal? Um, I would say yes, because as humans we have really poor eyesight at night um we're a diurnal species that means that we're going to be naturally you know awake during the day even though in modern times Mm -hmm. we have the ability to have fancy electric light our our bodies are meant to be um, active hunting in in the day so at night we would naturally get in our little safe protective area whatever you know that would be whether that is you know a tribal situation or if you're a primate in your little nest and then we don't leave because we can't see and there's predators out there and we can't see that well at night like walk into your room or like the bathroom and this is and when you talk about fear you want to really try and separate the ones you just are going to be part of your life forever so I'm still afraid to go in the bathroom when it's dark at night but I don't want to turn on a light because I won't be able to go back to bed but I have to pee and I just keep thinking like what if there's what if there's a snake in the toilet I live in downtown LA y'all like there's not I mean I don't live in the tropics I mean that's but I I just I don't know why and it's like what if it it's my butt. I don't know. I'm really. It's how cute. I'm like, time. how cute would that be? Just be like, mom, good night. Hi. I mean, but the, the probability. Very slim. I mean, it's in- very slim. <laughs> okay. Quick note here. How probable is it that a snake will bite your butt? 
I started looking into this to prove that it's happened like one time and the news likes to sell fear. And yes, sure enough, a family in Seattle a few years ago found an enormous ball python in their apartment toilet. And that kind of blew the notion up a bit. But and then I started finding more and more stories. Apparently, this is not an isolated incident. So the BBC did a piece on toilet critters, and one Australian wildlife worker says that rats sometimes hang out in sewer pipes, which is like so on brand for them, and the snakes follow the rats. They're just like walking hamburgers. So this guy gets called on about four or five times a year, and he was like not vague about his feelings. He said, quote, it's the worst job. You get a toilet bowl that's been there 30, 40 years, we see the bit that gets cleaned, but the rest of it doesn't. So when you go to pull the thing out of there, it's not fun. I usually have a bottle of disinfectant with me. Only imagine he said all of that in a very charming wildlife Australian accent. Okay, so then I scrolled through a large volume of images online of things in your toilet that should not be in your toilet. And I found photos of very wet baby bunnies, um, a dazed and sopping squirrel, and dozens of bright green toilet frogs that had just sauntered up a pipe after a rainstorm. So it happens, but it's still rare. And most of the time, just think of it as the universe delivering you a new temporary pet. Just, um, but it's it's one of those things that I think about and be like, okay, I, it's it's irrational. I'm just gonna just let it go. Um, and so, it, and part of it is when you go into a dark room, is you don't know what's going to be there. And this is why when we look at horror movies and the the tropes that are in there, they're very specifically tapping into those natural fears. You know, like horror movies are usually dark and there's a spooky house or there's a cornfield. And it's not like bright, sunny, beautiful day, usually. It's like dark so that you can hide in the shadows. Yeah, they're never like, they never take place in like a brightly lit Walmart or something where you're like... (laughs) Although that might be a good one. (laughs) Yeah, that strikes terror in a lot of people, I'm sure. (laughs) Topher Mendoza wants to know, is fear a learned behavior? Um says, I used to be afraid of a lot of things and then my belief structure changed and now I find it really hard to be scared by things that are supposed to be scary. So with fear, there's both. Um, Like we're saying, fictional and factual fear. So we are always going to have a natural fear response. Um, So at the the top of the hour, we're talking about stressors versus stress. So as those stressors change, we can have a different perception of how we're going to react to those stressors. And... Um, everyone's going to have a little bit of a different tolerance for dealing with different stressors. So you can learn to be more afraid. You can be, you can learn to be less afraid. Um, but you're always going to have fear in some way, shape or form. It might not be something you're dealing with daily, right? Like that factual fear of having your life physically threatened or someone that you love, um, that, you know, you're out of, you know, control to impact it or, you know, those kind of fears hopefully are very minimal in our lives. Um, so really the fictional fear is where we can do the most work and we have the most impact. So it sounds like the Patreon there was able to do that work with the fictional fears Mm -hmm. and start whittling down their reaction to those things that are not directly impacting their ability to survive. Right. And even within factual fears, like you look at um, military training mm-hmm. where they're trying to get people to move past what their initial like fear reaction would be with, you know, someone literally coming to pretend kill them. Military training involves something called fear inoculation, which is getting exposed to scary-ish situations in kind of small amounts until you're just no longer shocked by them. You're just kind of over it. So how do they do this? They simulate battle via, and this kind of blew my mind, paintball and laser tag, which now totally justifies my dislike of these recreational activities. If someone's like, hey, it's Saturday afternoon, you want to go do mini golf or like eat pancakes on a patio or pretend to kill each other with lasers, there's one of those things that I'm like, no, I'm good. And that's that's training and it it takes a while. But to say that even a highly trained Navy SEAL is not afraid is is ridiculous. They're still they're going to acknowledge it, but they're going to have the skills and training to move past it to do what they need to do. It'd be interesting to make a list of the things that scare you most or the times you've been most afraid and go back and think, was there an actual danger there? Yeah. You know what I mean? And how would I handle that fear in hindsight knowing I'm thinking about the times I've been most afraid and yeah, I I think about like the centrifuge and I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, no, I didn't need to be afraid. Even the mugging, I got through it. 
I threw my purse really far. I distracted them. I memorized their plates. I took them to court. Like, you know, it was not a pleasant experience. And I had PTSD for a while. But I clearly, you know, I think that if I if you look back on all the times that you've you've been afraid and thought, well, I I handled it in some I survived, you know, then it almost feels more empowering, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Jordan S. wants to know, weird and dumb question. Why does anxiety slash dread give us that stomach achy, crampy feeling? I understand the racing heart and fast breathing, but I can never really get why that stomach cramp feeling happens. And, that, and the big D word, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that Rhea is the way to get yourself out of it. <laughs> You're like Rhea or Rhea. One or yeah, the other. You gotta pick one. Yeah. So if you listen to part one, you may remember that Mary's tactic when you feel stressed out or angry or fretful is to stop and do some RIA, some RIA, which stands for recognize, identify, and address a fear or a stress when it comes up to figure out exactly what it is that you're afraid of. Throughout the the work that I do, I like to have a dichotomy because people love one or the other, yeah. right? Like binary of like left, right, good, bad, mm-hmm. up, down. Um, so in particularly for that question, we're talking about digestion. It's because digestion is a non-essential function of when we are in fear. So this is also why a sustained fear response leads to part of the obesity epidemic that we're seeing in the United States and throughout the developed world. Because when our body's in fear, it's not trying to digest properly. It's just be like, okay, shut it down because that's not going to, our digestive system is not going to help us um, fight off the stuff. Mm -hmm. So when like the grumbly tumbly stuff, that's more of the digestion system, like trying to like take things offline. And with the excavation aspect, that's trying to, trying to lighten the payload so that we, we just, you know, like dump the cargo so you can run faster. Um, which is, which is an animal response. Like when, um, birds like take off for flight, they want to lighten the cargo load, which is why they like poo before flight. Right. You want to, you know, (laughs) <laughs> make the journey as light as possible. I feel like any time you have loaded a, a pet into the car to go to the vet, you've probably gotten shit on, like, <laughs> at least once. Like, I remember having to take a cat to the vet once, and it was just explosion. It was like you stepped on a pastry bag. And I was like, why? And it's like, I'm scared. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what a car, I don't understand cars. Yeah. Like, I guess that our bodies do that before a big presentation or whatever, you know, your body's like, you know, it would help this presentation. (laughs) It's just a little bit of diarrhea. Give that something extra. (laughs) This is what's going to help you survive your like PhD dissertation is just explode your butthole. I've also heard that right before a fight, your body wants to lighten your load in case you get stabbed by claws, like in your colon, and then the less you have on board, the smaller your risk of contaminating your own body with the filthy contents that is the bag of waste that is your guts. I hope you're not eating. So I looked for some articles on this and I can't confirm it, but I think it's a cute idea. Kind of like your body just like tossing a bowl of chili in the bushes before a fist fight so it doesn't stain your shirt. Now, okay, what if you're just blessed with not feeling any fear at all. Well, there's this disease called Urbach-Weiss, I think that's how you pronounce it, that can cause calcium deposits and lesions on the little almond fear factory that is your amygdala. And thus, it can reduce a patient's fear response to next to nothing. My friend, Dr. Tegan Wall, thank you, by the way, for telling me about this over dinner, So one sufferer of this disease is identified only as SM. It's probably at the behest of the researchers for an anonymity, but she's probably like, so what if people find out who I am? I literally fear nothing. That's probably not true. But according to Wikipedia, quote, SM appears to experience relatively little negative emotion while simultaneously experiencing a relatively high degree of positive effect despite great adversity in her life. So researchers are like, yeah, she's pretty happy, man. She's kind of shit life, but she's pretty happy. So researchers took SM to an exotic pet store. They had her hold snakes and spiders, and she was fine. She was like, this is dope, which I kind of have to agree with her. That would be pretty cool. But they also took her to a haunted Halloween house, and she was just chill. She was like, this is fun. Her lack of anticipatory fear, though, has had its consequences. She walks alone at night, whenever she wants, and she's been mugged. 
but she continues to take the same walk home, something that her amygdala in a healthy state would otherwise be screaming at her like, no, recalculating route. Bitch, no, do not go down that street. But SM is said to be super friendly to strangers, so I imagine she's probably like a hoot at a cocktail party. Megan Gerard asks, setting aside really split-second, super bad situations, factional, what can we do to help control or tamp down fear for things that we know logically are not dangerous or scary? So once again, Rhea. Yeah, um, you know, like, try and recognize Mm -hmm. even just the, I mean, there's so much power in just having the self-awareness saying, oh, I'm having a fear response right now. Instead of just following that fear response like Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole, being like, should I, should I follow that rabbit or should I maybe just chill out and see what the, what the situation is? So recognizing that in the moment, um, identifying it, you know, like name it to claim it saying, okay, so what is this? Is it, is it dread? Do I just kind of like, am I anxious that something's going to happen? Uh, am I actually terrified? Am I, am I feeling just insecure? Like I just, I don't have control over the situation. And like I said before, those two are usually like enough to start pulling you out of it and then really address what kind of outcomes can be managed here. Is there a strategy you can employ um, that would help to alleviate what you're feeling right now? Or just even doing um, kind of what's the worst that could happen? That if you play that little game, you know, in your head, what's the worst that could happen? And just keep going for like five or six times. You get to a point you're like, okay, I'm actually not going to die. Then your brain's like, okay, we're not going to die. Cool. I'm going to go back to sleep. Good night. Those are, this is, I'm going to have to just carry that around on a, like a emergency bracelet. That's like <laughs> in case of emergency, RIA. Sarah Nichelle asks, how can someone be afraid of something they haven't necessarily experienced? Like sharks, for example, like what triggers a fearful response if you've never even been scared of it in person? Part of that can be media and sharks is such a good example because, uh, like toasters and vending machines kill more people every year than sharks. No. Right? For real. And unless you are a scuba diver or a surfer, sh- like it's not going to Sharknado. Yeah. Like up in your hometown <laughs> in Nebraska. Like why it's, they, they're literally in the ocean. <laughs> like yeah. But, but we have a terror of sharks because thanks Jaws, because they make a really good villain because they're not that cute they have like funky teeth they're big they're cold-blooded and so they make a really good way for stories to have a big scary monster Mm -hmm. because we like to be scared in a safe way and we want those big scary monsters and sharks just fit the bill really well so we have been trained to be scared of sharks and part of that is good storytelling of the build-up and and not having control like you know in Jaws where you have like the little swimmer on the top and why are they always women in bikinis that get eaten <laughs> and so you you know in we're not made to be in water we can be in water for a short amount of time but we're not that good we're kind of clunky and like yeah and so we don't have full control over over our faculties and that's already putting us in a vulnerable position so already kind of oh. like on edge yeah and then you have something coming from the deep and it's you know like i just ooh, scary mufasa say yeah. it again right <laughs> So you have darkness and you have the inability to, I mean, you probably can't fight it because you just, you got these dumb little arms and then flight is difficult because you're, you can't swim as fast as you can run. Yeah. Yeah. You can't see it. Yeah. You probably can't hear it because it's under the ocean. They're not like, Hey, I'm a shark. I'm coming. Ding, ding, ding. So all of our senses that keep us safe, that let us understand our outside world aren't really that great in the water. Mm-hmm. And that makes us vulnerable to actual death. And that's what is really good to tap into the big scary monster idea. So sharks just get a bad rap. I know. Poor sharks. Poor sharks. Vending machines. Watch out. Right? I did some research on that one. So once I was hosting and writing on this show about fearful situations and the science behind them. And so before we shot, I did some digging on airshow fighter pilot dangers versus shark dangers versus vending machines. And it turns out that sharks in the U.S. kill like one person every two years. And maybe one or two deaths a year happen in fighter jet aeronautic flights like air shows but vending machines tipping over kill two people a year usually people who've been trying to shake snacks free from their coiled grip while i was on location with fighter pilots shooting the show a vending machine at the air force base started to 
dispensed some barbecue potato chips, about which I was very excited, but then just dangled them mercilessly at me. And these two fighter pilots were like, yeah, sometimes you just have to gotta shake the machine. And I was like, no, y'all can't go out like this. Of all the ways, this is the most dangerous. But it was fine. And the chips, the chips were good. And I was like, Dang, vending machines are dangerous. Yep, yep. And it's perception, right? And, and data will only go so far to quelling your your perceived fears. Like, no one's afraid of a vending machine. Yet, yeah. the data shows that more people die from vending machines than sharks. But our brain has that such that deep bias of like, I'm still not, I'm still not going to be afraid of a vending machine. <laughs> and that doesn't even count. The cholesterol problems that might happen with a vending machine or like, you know, the coronary disease that happens. I mean, you're talking to someone who used to eat ham sandwiches out of vending machines. Oh, I had a job where that was dinner at like midnight as I would go down and get a ham sandwich. So, yeah, they're dangerous on a lot of fronts. Um, Bob wants to know, how clear is the line between anxiety and fear? And and can you tell me a little bit more about those negative health effects of living with fear? Now, you said anxiety and fear are pretty much the same thing. Pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Um, now, we're talking about clinical level anxiety. That's going to be um, a like actual um, thing that needs to be addressed in a professional setting. Right. So that's when you aren't able to adequately handle your fear and your anxiety is negatively impacting your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that line is always fuzzy. It's kind of like addiction, right? Where are you someone that just likes to drink or is the drinking impacting your life where you can't be successful? You're not having good relationships. You can't get to work or school. You know, where is that line? Not everyone that drinks wine needs to be treated at an addiction center. Mm -hmm. But there are some people that go to that level of the spectrum that they they can't handle their consumption of alcohol and need to go be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, I find addiction one of those things that's almost easier to talk about than fear and anxiety in society, which is why I use it as an analogy, Mm -hmm. because sometimes, you know, the brain has gotten to the point where just having these strategies isn't going to help. And you need to kind of get to that root of, you know, was it trauma driven? Yeah. What, you know, what's going on for that individual person um, and, and where that threshold is, is seriously just like a person by person thing. Mm-hmm. And some of the health effects of fear, you were saying mm. cell regeneration, skin, digestive health, like scare me a little bit more <laughs> about <laughs> not being scared. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, and it's definitely not in my nature to try and bring the doom and gloom. Um, mm-hmm. But when we look at like more and more research is coming out associating the way we live our lives and the fear responses and the stress response to these like what we thought were unrelated, like large issues in health. So the, the top killers of humans in the United States is heart disease, stroke and cancer. Mm-hmm. So those are going to be like your big three. And they're all associated with stress and fear. Now there's going to be a like genetic component of it, but you can't control your genetic component. You can control your stress level and you can control your lifestyle choices. So, you know, those are the things you want to focus on. And just looking at the three, the big three, stroke, heart disease, and cancer, I mean, I don't have statistics on me, but like they kill a lot of people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. I'm going to rattle these off as fast as I can. So no one is too bummed out. But heart disease is 630,000 deaths a year. Cancer about 600,000 deaths a year. And then lower respiratory disease is 150,000 a year. So, okay. Be less afraid of sharks and spiders and toilet snakes and public speaking. And I guess be more afraid of ice cream. It's so weird to think that gelato looks like your friend, but it could actually be your murderer. Like our typical American diet is just in menacing cahoots with stress and sleep deprivation. And they're all going to have that component of fear and stress Mm -hmm. because they are something that is cultivated every day. You know, like cancer is one of those things that lifestyle choices are going to impact it. So it depends. Cancer is one of those really tricky things to talk about with just one word Mm -hmm. because every cancer is very different in how it behaves and how um, it's going to um, like come about in the body. But at the heart of it, it's a disease of the cell cycle. So during that cellular generation process, something went wrong. The cell is like chugging along, wanted to do its thing, and something went wrong, and it starts making cells that it didn't mean to make, and those are going to turn into those cancer cells. Mm-hmm. And depending on what type of cancer you're looking at, you know, they're going to be an impact of how your body's constantly in that stress state and not focusing energy on cellular regeneration mm. and and keeping up the housekeeping. So like your cell house is getting super messy because 
your brain is like, no, we need to focus all the energy on the stress responses because we think that we're dying all the time. Right? Wow. Like, cause our body's not meant to be in that constant state of, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Mm-hmm. And now I imagine also that must affect immunology and your immune system's mm-hmm. ability to kind of police things and say, is this, do yeah. we need to send some cells after this thing? And well, yeah, I mean, the biggest part of your immunity is contained in your digestive system. So if your digestive system is not getting any attention because your body's like, sorry, digestive system, <laughs> um, we need to take care of other things. And then in the, in the moments that you do calm down, a lot of people turn to food to help like get those like happy feelings going. Yeah. So they're shoving a bunch of food, usually not Brussels sprouts. Like no yeah. one stress eats <laughs> broccoli. Like I've had such a hard day, babe. I just, I need some broccoli before I can talk to you. <laughs> Literally said no one ever. Did some research on this and I found at least one person who might argue otherwise. So on September 14th, 2016, someone on the website, twitter.com with the handle blanket person tweeted, quote, I think I'm addicted to broccoli. I'm going to fave and retweet this from the Ologies Twitter, and perhaps, just perhaps, we can follow up to see if he's still struggling with that. Meanwhile, the rest of us tend to make less healthy choices when we numb out. Um, so what do you do? You go for the sugars, you go for the fats, you go for the crunchy, the things that you probably shouldn't be eating anyway, but you want to get some, you know, happy brain chemicals happening. So you're shoving that into your body. Then maybe you go back on your email and you start the whole thing over again. And your body's not really properly digesting things. The um, bacterial flora in your um, digestive system isn't, you know, up to par. Um, you can have bacterial uh, die off with stress. Um, which is decreasing your immunity. So it's like a total body thing. You know, I have to say also, I think that like, if you're going to spend time doing serums and sheet masks, it's probably also good for your skin to just talk yourself through your fear storms. Right? You know what I mean? <laughs> I have to say, when I was meditating more, people were like, your skin looks amazing. And I was like, really? <laughs> and dang, I didn't, I was probably changing my body's priorities a little bit. I'll have to look into that. All right. I looked into this and apparently it is a thing. So being in a constant state of fear ups your cortisol, which boosts oil production and gives you breakouts. It also boosts sugar levels in the blood, which breaks down collagen and that makes your skin look old and wrinkly and dry. So If people are starting to tell you that you look like your dad and you're like, dude, I'm 30 or you're missing out on sleep because you're up watching videos about what serums to spend $46 on. There's so many serums. Maybe we should all just give this meditation thing a good go and just calm this amygdala. Meditation, like it seems kind of annoying if it's just like hocus pocus, but when you look at it as a brief respite from terror and the chemical effects of just having like a fire alarm happening in your brain or body, you're like, yes, sure, namaste, let's do this. I mean, it is, it's cheaper than sheet masks and it takes way less time per day than under eye spackle. And you just, you might end up crying less in airport bathrooms. I'm talking exclusively to myself on that last one. Courtney Sobieski asks, why do we sometimes re-scare ourselves if our minds wander? Like, say I listen to a scary story and then a week later as I'm falling asleep, I think about the scary story and experience the fear reaction all over again, unprompted. Why does my body do that to me? She asks. Because we're kind of like masochistic and we just, (laughs) there's that portion (laughs) of our brain. Part of it is that we like to dress rehearse tragedy yeah. um, because there's a portion of our like dysfunctional mind that thinks that if we just practice enough, we will be prepared. Yeah. We will be safe, right? We, we're constantly looking for safety. And even though safety really doesn't exist, mm-hmm. um, that we, we're, we're constantly striving for it. And by dress rehearsing that tragedy, our mind's like, okay, cool. I will be ready. I will be ready. And you keep going back to it. Um, and part of it is we just have this like sick fascination with beating ourselves up for stuff. Like, yeah. I, don't, I think and that's that's never going to go away, but you definitely can manage it in a way where it stops being um, so negative on your life. And it's, it's going to pop up, especially if you're someone that naturally goes to those places. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's going to just magically disappear, but you can turn down the dial a whole lot to where it's a whisper instead of like, blaring in your ear and you can't focus on anything else a bullhorn of fear (laughs) uh jim a foghorn but a foghorn (laughs) that's next level man 
little lighthouse of anxiety. <laughs> Jim Merson, who is a wonderful person, I know him personally. Hi, Hi Jim. Jim. Um, says, I'm so curious as to the ethical implications in studying fear. How does one conduct an experiment that requires someone to feel afraid that doesn't also harm them? So do scientists have to make sure to reinforce the subject's safety after they've made them feel afraid? So how is fear studied in a clinical aspect? How do clinicians do experiments on stress response? Yeah, so fear as like a study is is massive, right? Um, If you're going to focus on humans and um, like more of the clinical extremes, the the outliers of the populations. Um, In terms of ethics, it depends what year you're looking at. Mm. So, you know, pre-1980s, not great. Pre-1920s, really not great. Oh, lobotomies? Yeah, we should totally do that. So, um, and mental health is one of those things that there's still stigma around mental wellness and mental health. Um, it used to be where people had no rights. If you were like mentally unwell, you were put in asylums. You were abused. I mean, you, so I mean, in terms of ethics, <laughs> wasn't a lot of ethics. So it depends yeah. on what time period you're looking at. Um, if you're looking at modern studies, it's definitely, and if it's in a clinical situation um, and it's, you know, United States based again, every country's a little bit different on, on their laws. Now we have a lot of protections for patients and their well being. And it's part of the design process before whatever institution or organization you're at, you have to have really, really like strong safeguards mm-hmm. in there to be able to have that study approved. So now it's much more ethical. Usually it's, it's partnered with a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the newest thing, like I was saying before, is, is VR. And how we can use VR um, to give some of that experience and exposure therapy, but in the safest way. Because it used to be, you know, like, oh, I'm afraid of spiders. Okay, we're going to put your hand in a box of spiders. You're like, what? Most people just even like are not, no, I'll just be afraid of spiders. That's fine. But with VR, because people know it's quote unquote fake, but it's kind of your brain doesn't know that. Um, your like conscious brain knows that, but your Mm -hmm. your subconscious um, brain doesn't. And so... They're a little bit more open to be like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. Doesn't mm-hmm. sound fun, but it doesn't sound as bad as some other exposure therapy. So it's, it's going to open a lot more ability to research and and just asking people, right? Humans studying humans is hard, so a lot of it is asking, okay, what are your perceptions? What is your level of fear on spiders before you went into the VR? What's mm-hmm. your level after? And just really exploring that. By the way, VR stands for virtual reality, which is like those Oculus Rift, like the huge goggles that cover your face and like an immersive, crazy situation. So I didn't want to interrupt before, but yeah, that's what that means. So virtual spiders may pave the way to calming your shit around three-dimensional alive ones. And here's a secret. The alive ones, they usually just, they want to hang out in your shower. They just want to look up at you. They want to hear you sing. You're like their nude Celine Dion. So do not smear your biggest fans into a paste with a paper towel. They love you. There's also some research in the clinical setting around depression and um, using really delicate electrical current mm-hmm. and um, like, you know, like outside of the skull. So it would be like an in-office visit where you'd have like little pads and they'd put it, you know, like on your forehead and around your skull to kind of like see if they can get away from so much um, medication-based treatments mm-hmm. and start to kind of almost reset the electrical currents in your brain. And some people find a lot of ther- like you know therapeutic stuff with that. So there's going to be a lot more research, again, with people that are already struggling with that thing mm-hmm. and seeing how those treatment options are, are helping to um, impact them to get them back to like a baseline where they're um, a higher functioning in that area. So instead of just like going to the mall and kidnapping someone and saying, I'm going to show you a bunch of weapons and see how scared you get, it's some of the research is more like you have a problem. Yeah. Come on into the study. Let's see if we can help with the problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the other kind of aspect, and we've done this forever. A lot of the biology and physiological studies are usually done on soldiers because the captive audience, you don't really need their permission. <laughs> and it's crazy. But. Yeah, there's I mean, it's so, you know, the ethics have gotten better around that. Um, but in terms of fear, it's very common to study um, special ops groups mm. um, or incoming cadets. Um, and because they're, you know, they're going to be in the same place. They live together. So it's kind of like in, in ecological studies, we love to study islands mm-hmm. because you start to decrease the number of variables. So we study our, our military a lot. Um, but then you run into the situation of those aren't 
everyone's experiences. Mm-hmm. Very few people, when you look at the whole population, are ever going to be Navy SEALs. Yeah. Like, I can't even do a push-up. Like, <laughs> I, can, I can do a plank, but like, I mean, I'm not, not even a real push-up. So... They keep trying to recruit me, and I'm like, you guys, not now. <laughs> right? Not, I'm going to be in my peak form two, three years from now. Ask me again. <laughs> Ping exactly. me then. Right? But we... So we can use them, though, maybe to to look at trends or to mm-hmm. look at models and then apply that yeah. mm-hmm. in once we've refined them into into the greater population. Yep, exactly. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating. Jessica uh, Geisler wants to know, is there a biological advantage to emetophobia? I haven't been able to shake it my entire life. I think that is the fear of barfing because there is a barfing emoji. And I don't know about that. That might be a phobic question. I think that's a fear of barfing. Yeah, I've never heard of that, but I... I I mean, if yeah. there's a barfing emoji. Yeah, yes, that is. I just looked it up and it is a fear of barfing. Okay. Um, you know, I don't personally study phobias, so I would be hesitant right. to say if there's... I mean, the ability to vomit is a evolutionary adaptation for survival in and of itself of mm-hmm. all humans, um, which is one of the... Uh, I know I keep coming back to AR and VR because I'm actually doing um, uh, AR and VR work in education, so it's like on which my mind. Cool. So um, there is a you know, as they're continuing to develop VR is that a lot of people get nauseous from it. And that's because when our body has perceived um, that something is making like our ability to see things correctly, um, it it assumes that it's like something we've eaten that's bad. So our body's like, oh no, we've been poisoned, eject. But, you know, stomach wow. context, right? Um, this is why, like, if you put someone else's glasses on, that they will make you, like, oh, like, yeah. it, it starts to make you dizzy or nauseous, or if your glasses aren't quite where they need to be. Um, so it, it could be, like, something, you know, over developed in that area. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it is a way that if we have eaten something bad, our body can purge it. But if I had to guess, okay. that would be my, my two cent answer. Isn't that nuts? So the little fluid-filled tubes in your ears are like, okay, I'm sensing motion. Yep, that was a corner. We're moving. Holy shit. And your body's like, no, 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 dude. I'm just sitting here in the seat. I'm not even moving my legs or anything. So they have a meeting about it, and the consensus is, we're hallucinating. We've eaten moldy garbage. We're hallucinating. Let's barf. So, okay, this is not an episode on phobias, but Jessica, I don't want to leave you hanging. So I did look it up, and one method of getting over it involves confronting the fear head on and then abstaining from any rituals that you might do to avoid it, like running away or praying for the apocalypse. This kind of therapy is called exposure and response prevention, aka ERP or ERP, which is coincidentally the, the noise I made before unpoisoning myself over my snake basin when I last had the stomach flu. I don't know how the exposure part works, by the way, but maybe they just take you to a spring break party. Let me know how it goes. Dane Goding wants to know, does your body have the same chemical and um, autonomic reactions to fear when you're asleep and having a nightmare as it does when you're awake and conscious? Um, so the, the fear and stress response system is is the same all the time. Oh, right? okay. Um, when we're asleep, our body has created a system to essentially paralyze us so we don't act out our dreams, which is good for our bed partners. So we're like, <laughs> right? Um, but we, we still have the physiological system. So like if you have like a really vivid nightmare and you wake up, and you're like, <gasps> and you're probably sweating, right? And you feel like you've been running and like it takes you a second to figure out that it was it was just a dream. So our body is, is still having that physiological response but because we're in sleep um we also have that kind of protective sheath of of sleep that is preventing us from acting out our dreams now sometimes people don't always have that strong of sheath and that's why you can have like night terrors or um if you are taking a sleeping pill like ambien this is why sometimes people will have um you know get up and drive a car or do things on on sleep medication so it doesn't always work but that's usually why we wake up and we haven't like pummeled our bed partner, but we're all like sweaty and uh, yeah. out of breath. <laughs> oh, that's so nuts. Anna Marie says, I have chronic night terrors. I had chronic night terrors as a child and I still have them occasionally as a 35 year old. Is this something that ever fully goes away? That's probably going to be like a person by person basis. Okay. Um, so usually night terrors are going to be like really extreme nightmares and they're recurring. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, you know, they could be associated with the trauma, like they're reliving that trauma because they haven't 
um, like fully de- like dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it could just be something that their psyche is trying to like act out and express um, in in their dream state. So, you know, it's kind of uh, I don't I don't think that anyone has one answer that fits all humans. Yeah, it also kind of probably depends on what. Um, they're doing to address it right like are they getting professional therapy where they're able to say like oh this is happening and you know oh maybe this is why or maybe you could address this kind of thing or or they you know um just numbing it out with particular substances or they just ignoring it so i think it also depends on what that like individual or any individual is doing to kind of address it that's a good that's a good answer side note i just watched a bunch of videos on youtube about night terrors and i don't recommend it Although I do have to give credit to Britain for making sympathetic TV shows exploring these really frightening medical topics, such as their program titled, quote, Embarrassing Bodies. Is there anything embarrassing or challenging about Mary's job? What is the crappiest thing about your job? What is the hardest thing? What is the most annoying thing? Is it scheduling? Is it... um having to look at your own internal workings like what's the is it email taxes um i would say like i mean about my like professional job Mm -hmm. um it's constantly dealing with like imposter syndrome Mm. of of being what i do is so weird and so interdisciplinary that i'm you know specifically trained um and you know have graduate degrees in biology um my science communication um master's is from imperial college and those make me feel good about what i'm saying for about five seconds and then you know it's it's one of those things that because it's so weird i feel like oh i'm not i'm not good enough to do these things or like who am i to you know like have this share this knowledge and stuff and um and that's why i'm always really really careful to say like i'm not a clinical psychologist i don't see clients um or patients um so that people know like i'm i am getting this stuff from some of my own research but also research in the literature and that just continuing to convince myself that this work is important because other people will have value from it. Um, that's a constant conversation for me because I think it's, you know, it's so much easier. Um, I've been teaching at San Jose State University. This is my 11th year now. And, and I could just, I can continue doing exactly only that role until I retire and it'd be safe and it'd be comfortable. And I mean, I know that I'm a good teacher. I feel confident in it because I've been doing it for 11 years. But that's not going to ever allow me to grow. And if I want to experience the world in a, in a greater, more colorful way, then, then I have to do the things that scare me. And that means constantly pushing the like boundaries of my own personal boundaries. And um, I also do a lot of like public speaking. And every time, you know, like I before I go on stage, I'm just like on the text with my friends. Whatever. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to die. Uh. It's like, like, okay, like at what point do you stop being freaked out by like a really big talk? And maybe that's never, right? But I always feel really good coming off stage. I feel really good having that ability to connect with people and, and they find value in, in these tips and tricks that they can then, apply to their lives and and for me having that as like a bigger goal helps with the imposter syndrome um but i think i think everyone really you know like so many people have roles with that of like so many people it's amazing yeah and people that you would be like you have it you're the boy you make me have imposter syndrome (laughs) you're so amazing (laughs) so yeah i think um you know i i talked to the in the gynecology episode about that to the gynecologist mm-hmm. who didn't feel comfortable saying she was a doctor for a while and how the imposter syndrome is more prevalent in people who are capable and intelligent, mm-hmm. yeah. which is so <laughs> annoying because <laughs> you're like, so if you have imposter syndrome, chances are you don't need to have it. That's, yeah. There you go. Yeah. I fixed it. <laughs> what's uh, what's your favorite part about what you do? Um, I think that... It, it allows me to have, I've, I've taken a long time to craft a lifestyle that is really feral, um, where I'm a full digital nomad. Um, I do everything on a weird schedule. Um, I'm constantly traveling and I love that lifestyle of not being in a tiny box and not having a time to like, you know, punch the clock. And that's something that I've really been able to 
find a lot of joy in um, that I could pair my research and um, my science communication and my teaching and my love of travel and put all those things together um, is just, you know, like really, really special and I'm very privileged to be able to do that of, you know, posting the like, here's my office today with my laptop on the beach. Right. (laughs) Um, And it's it's such a unique experience that there's not all the jobs in the world that you could do that. Mm -hmm. So so really lucky that I can pull all these things and everything I do has been driven by my interests which is also a, a privilege. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, people are in jobs, they're like, the reason why they're unhappy is because they have no interest in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Where um, I I do this because I love it. That means I don't have a distinct off switch. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lifestyle, not a... Um, job that you clock in and clock out of my mind's always thinking about things you know like writing down stories that would be good to tell on stage i'm thinking about how i could do an activity in a workshop so that's not for everyone yeah right a lot of people want to just like leave it at the office um you know since my office is the planet it (laughs) there's you know but um it's such a privilege to be able to do that it's funny too because that was one of your mother's greatest fears and that was one of your greatest fears is leaving home and that's one of your greatest joys now yeah run towards your fear <laughs> yeah which is amazing it, it almost makes it makes me want to write down what I am most afraid of and mm-hmm. really examine it differently because I think that I just let fear kind of knock on my door and I'm like who is it ah come in and ruin my life you know what I mean like I don't really I don't necessarily like run toward things that that might be scary and kind of get over them so that's yeah. really inspiring I can tell you that you do not have any of the markings of an imposter i think you are very good at what you do please take that throw it into the ocean you're amazing oh thank you thank Thank you for letting me talk to you this is the longest interview i've ever done because i cannot stop asking you questions you are amazing thank you so so much for being on oh you're so so welcome so for more about mary poffinroth if you haven't already gingerly begun stalking her her website is mary poffinroth Dot com. She's Mary Poffinroth on Twitter and Facebook and on Instagram. She's Fear Forward. Now to follow Ologies, we're at Ologies on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, we're on Patreon.com slash Ologies if you'd like some perks there, like submitting your questions to Ologists and seeing photos and videos. Uh, you can also fund the podcast and cover your body at ologiesmerch.com, which was just updated by Bonnie Dutch. We have some new pin designs up by Shannon Feltis. Thank you both for that. Uh, you can join up on Facebook on the Ologies podcast group. Thank you, Hannah Lippo, Esquire. She just passed the bar. And Aaron Talbert for adminning for your old pop. And thank you to Stephen Ray Morris for editing and cutting this all up and putting it back together for me every week. You're the best. Um, the music was written and performed by Nick Thorburn of the band Islands. You should check them out. And you know what? I th- okay, I have an idea. What if you ask smart people dumb questions? Because thinking the questions are dumb is actually a fictional fear. No questions are dumb. I just say that so that you don't judge yourself. Okay, so if you hang through the credits, you know I tell a secret the end of every episode. And this one, I thought I'd stay on brand. I wrote this on an airplane somewhere over Tennessee, just tippity-tapping away. So I thought I'd make a list of my fears and tell you what they are. One, getting divorced, which is probably why I've never gotten married. Uh, Two, mismanaging money. So I'm so afraid of overspending my money like an idiot or like MC Hammer did in the 1990s, God bless him, that I just never buy myself shoes or clothes. So I could probably change that and live a little. Um, Another fear, teeth falling out. You know those dreams where your teeth fall out? I do not want that, IRL. Which also reminds me, I'm out of dental floss. So, okay, everyone, let's read up on, I don't know, retirement accounts and maybe treat yourself to some shoes on sale and let's practice good oral hygiene. I hope you end up making a list of things that have been nagging at you. I mean, there are some things we can't change, like the death of people we love or just the inevitable, our butts are going to get droopy. But we can say to ourselves that I'll live that sorrow when it comes. You can't pre-grieve anything. You can only enjoy what you have right now and deal with the fears that you have and you can do something about. So I hope that helps. I hope you go out and do the things you want to do. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology,
This is the song that... Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must-listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.